how tense it got all of a sudden <laughs> when we heard that we were being yeah we're being recorded. So my lawyer told me not to say a word. So how are you today? Great. Yeah. What's one of your favorite verses in the book of Hebrews? Does anybody have a favorite or one that they can just go to like that? One that they could just quote off the top of their head or an old an old an old standard over here? Yes, sir. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Yes, which is, which is, by the way, an echo from Habakkuk 2, which says the righteous will live by faith, which Hebrews quotes. What else from Hebrews? Anything. Yes, ma'am. Hebrews 12.1, let us Yes, Hebrews 12.1. And in fact, I noticed in the camp brochure that the 5K they're doing quotes Hebrews 12.1. Let us run the race marked out for us. Yes. What else? What else comes to your mind when it comes to Hebrews? What, sorry? 12-2. What's 12-2? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Mm, I love that. And she did that without blinking. That was good. That was from memory. That was good. Great. What else? Yes? I'm not sure how good I'll get in here, but keeping our eyes, seeing we are surrounded by such a cloud. Great cloud of witnesses, yeah. Uh-huh. The author and finisher of our faith, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, over here someplace, there's something that, where? If we go on sinning ah. willfully, willfully after yes. having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying judgment. Mm, yeah. Yuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not all feel goodery, is it? I mean it's it gets right down to the man, we gotta take this seriously. Yeah, what else from Hebrews? Yes. Um, I love that. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is confidence of... What, can you read it again? Oh, Sorry. Confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we do not see. There's a great... The scripture itself defines faith, which is um, one of our, you know, big terms, obviously. We're faith people, right? So, so like, you know, someone walks up to you, walks up to you and, and they say, what is faith to you? What does faith mean? Right away, you can quote Hebrews 11. You know, confidence of what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see now. That will require some explanation as well. Nonetheless, it's a great place to start. What else? I'm looking for one in particular that Bible quizzers, especially, if you ever did that, love. They were sought in two for their faith. <laughs> also from Hebrews 11. Yeah, in fact, um, the cool thing about Hebrews 11 is... It gives you this, this, uh, this long um, sort of hall of fame of people of the faith who, you know, conquered giants and did this and did that, and they were sawed in half for their beliefs. And, like, it just jumps from miracle to, like, suffering, like, w without even a second thought. Yeah. 13, um, in chapter 13, is never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Yes. And the same chapter, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Just yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of uh, of that because um, our definition of Jesus is really important. Our culture has a general definition of Jesus that's kind of all over the map. Very few people argue against the existence of Jesus, the historicity of Jesus. Just about everybody says, "Yes, there is a Jesus who walked this earth." One of the places where you can really tell where they land theologically is their view of Jesus. 
So it's not just, do you believe in Jesus? That, that will tell us something, but it doesn't tell us everything. I mean, demons believe that there's a Jesus, right? And tremble, by the way. Um, somebody uh, of uh, Jehovah's Witness line of faith. What do they do with Jesus? Great prophet. Son of God? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Islam. What do they do with Jesus? Great prophet. Son of God? Are you kidding me? Or, or the idea of the Trinity. What? Polytheism? Like, you know, as soon as you dig a little deeper into who is Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is our great high priest, who is the one, the author and finisher, the perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of our salvation, made perfect through what he suffered. What's great about Hebrews is it gives you a handle on Jesus. I mean, it really helps you understand beyond the Gospels who it is we're dealing with. So let me ask you this question. Oh, by the way, the verse I was looking for was uh, Hebrews 4.12. Look at it really quick with me. This is like every Bible quizzer's dream verse, Hebrews 4.12. And this will actually be a good place oh to, to go. What? I was just reading that. I just had my thing and when you were asking for... Then you've... Then you've got to read it out loud. Okay, bring it. Okay, well, Just 4.12 4, through 13. It's titled Suffering for Being a Christian. Mm, Hebrews 4.12? Uh, yeah. oh, oh, oh! I'm sorry, I was a Peter. The one that's, <laughs> that's two theophanies. I'm so it's okay. It's all right. But I was still in Peter from last night. Oh, that was good stuff, too. Peter. Can't go wrong with Pete. I, I really thought there was like a big scary clown behind me or something. Oh my gosh! Wow. I really should have had one less cup of coffee. Just one less. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Would you please read it really loud for us. There you, there you have it. That's the one, right? So there you have it. There's even a description of the scripture. How do we describe the scripture? Living and active. Living and active. It's not a passive dead book. It's alive. Listen, um, one of the things that I found with Bible memorization is that it doesn't get old. You would think that having that same chunk of scripture in your head running again and again and again would get old and repetitive. It doesn't. When I was in, hi guys, welcome. Come on in. Come on in. When I was in college, I read the book of Philippians every day for a month. I just read the, four chapters. It takes 20 minutes, if that. I read it every day for a month. And you would think after a few days, I would get so tired of reading Philippians. Oh, Paul, he's so full of joy, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't go that way. If you've ever done this, it doesn't go that way. And I encourage you to try this if you haven't. For whatever reason, when you read the scripture again and again and again, it doesn't get boring. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, that rabbit hole just goes farther and farther down. It's amazing. The mystery. It becomes more complex, not less. It becomes more beautiful, not less. It becomes more alive, not less. And what's happening? It's alive. This book is alive because the author is alive and the author is at work. So, of course, it gets down to the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
That's good. But there's also a scary part in verse 15, and it's that nothing in all creation is hidden from its sight. Which means you cannot avoid the power of the scripture. Hi, you guys. Welcome. Come in. Sorry. It's okay. It's all right. We're all pals. It's all good. I love that even babies are here. This is awesome. Good. Craving pure spiritual milk. Now, um, so let me ask this question. Again, just a general question. You guys are doing so great with talking back to me. That's awesome. It makes it way more fun. Why was the Bible written? For us. For us. Okay. For us. For us, why? What do we need it for? Oh, man. Yeah. Instruction. Reproof. Correction, fellowship, teaching. What's that? Ooh, yeah, because, because without the scripture, we don't have that kind of revelation, right? We don't have a least record of it. Our roadmap. It's our roadmap? Good. Principles of life. Yeah, it's Hebrews 4.12. We need to be divided, joints and marrow. We need to be examined. But, you know, it didn't really come to the people of the New Testament to write the scripture at first. Why? Jesus was there, obviously. And then Jesus ascends, and so it took them a while to sort of come around to the idea that maybe they should write this stuff down. Why? What's that? They thought he was going to come back Tuesday. They really did. I mean, the early Christians, for the most part, believed that Christ was going to return in their lifetime. Five years, ten years, maybe twenty years. There's no, why would they write it down? Plus, it wasn't really a text culture. They weren't doing books you know, as much as we do post-Gutenberg. So there was no reason to write it down. And they would tell the story with each other. I mean, they would, just, they would share it with each other orally. It was just a story that they would just talk about all the time with each other. And so there was no reason to jot it down. And then after a while, Christians started dying. And as Christians started dying, the church went into like a low-level crisis, panic, like, well, wait a minute. If they die before Christ returns, what's going to happen? I mean, where are they now? Because those angels said, remember we heard the story, that the angels said that Christ would return just as we saw him ascend, that we would see him return. They said it would be us, that we would see him return. And one of those guys is dead. That's why 1 Thessalonians was written. If you look at 1 Thessalonians, it addresses, what about believers who have died? Where are they? What happens to them? About the same time, the Gospel of Mark was written. Because they wanted to make sure that Mark's account was kept. And, and that's why Mark, the Gospel of Mark is so short. Because they didn't need a bunch of extraneous details. People knew. The, they just wanted to get the core of it, the brunt. Sort of like if you've ever journaled before and you journal things and you, want, you write down sort of the conversation. They said this, I said that. You don't write down, it was sunny that day and warm and the birds were singing their tip. You don't write down a lot of detail stuff. You don't need to remember that. You want to remember the core. And that's why Mark was written. Then the other Gospels... And then Paul shows up and starts writing letters to churches that he wasn't, Paul wasn't thinking, I'm going to write the Bible. I'm going to, you know what I should do is write 1 Timothy. That would be, that would be great. And then I should do 2 Timothy after that because every good letter needs a sequel. They, he, wasn't, he wasn't thinking like that. They were just writing these documents to, to record and to remember. And so now the reason we have the Bible is because, yes, all those things that you just said, edification and, and, and challenge and reproof and encouragement, but they had that just amongst themselves verbally, orally. They would speak these things. Now we have it because they wanted to make sure it didn't get lost. 
And so when we study a book of the Bible, especially the New Testament, I mean, obviously the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that was written and kept by the rabbis and, and kept and preserved. That was the word of God. And so a child, a Jewish child, would have those scriptures memorized in their early days. All Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, a couple chapters in Hebrews is the child's plate to them. They were doing that in the crib, that kind of memorization. By the time they were 13, they had all of the first five books of the Bible memorized. Can you imagine that? You know why they had time to do that? No technology. <laughs> That's how they found the time to remember all that. There's nothing else to do. So when we're talking about a book of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we need to ask questions. We need to ask, to whom was it sent? You know, who, who was it written for? Who's our audience? That's the first question. Who are the recipients? Second question we want to ask is, who wrote it? Who's the author? Because all these scriptures are written by human hands, guided along by the Holy Spirit. Who's the author? And the third question is, when was it written? So we want to know, who was it written for? Who's our audience? Who wrote it? Who's our author, our human author? And when was it written? Why do we want to know these three things? We want to know these three things in the scripture because if we can know who the recipients are and get into their world, we can understand what may have generated or caused that scripture to be written in the first place. For example, Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul. We know something about the church because of what we read in Galatians and what we see in other New Testament documents and other, and other sources as well. So we know that the reason Galatians starts with such a harsh angle, where Paul's kind of mad, is because of what was happening with the recipients. The author, of course, we want to know who wrote it and where they were when they wrote it. And then we want to know when they wrote it so we know what was happening culturally. So, with most of the scripture, with most of the New Testament, we can identify pretty clearly the recipients, the author, and the time frame. Let's talk about Hebrews, though. Do you know who Hebrews was written to? Okay, so did you say the Hebrews and then giggle? Because you're like, I'm the smart aleck in class. <laughs> I would do the same thing. You're absolutely right, it was written to the Hebrews, great. Question. Who are the Hebrews? Are you sure? Which Jews? Christian Jews? What language do they speak? Are you, are you sure? Are you sure? Because if they, because if they speak in the language, language Hebrew, why was the book of Hebrews written in Greek? So wait a minute. Who are our Greek-speaking people? Greeks, Gentiles, but also a certain sect of Jews. Hellenistic, Greek. Hellenistic Jews. What time What's Hellenistic. Hellenistic. They were all named Helen. No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Helen was their great, great. <laughs> so when we ask the question of recipients, this is about all we know. We're pretty sure it was a local congregation, just like many of the other New Testament letters, so it was written to a congregation, maybe of about this size, of Jewish believers. I'm going to use the phrase Jewish believers to describe people who grew up in Judaism, Israelites, who came to faith in Christ. We might call them today a Messianic Jew, perhaps, okay? We think it was written to a Jewish congregation of, by the way, very smart people. Like, it might have, like this group here, it might have been written to a group of Jewish believers who really knew a lot about what we would now call Old Testament theology. They knew their stuff. 
They knew how it worked in the temple. They knew the patriarchs. They knew the history and tradition and customs of, of the Jewish way. I mean, these were like professors and teachers. This was like a bunch of pastors or a bunch of Sunday school teachers getting together and talking about all the things that Hebrews talks about. Um, would somebody turn to Romans 9.4? You don't all have to. You can if you want. I mean, we could bounce all over the place. <clears throat> Romans 9.4. We are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So yes, Paul is talking about the people of Israel the kind of people that we assume are the recipients of the book of Hebrews. And Paul says in verse 5 that theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who was God over all and for all and forever to be praised. So the Israelites, remember your Old Testament history, the Israelites, the Jews, are God's chosen people, right? Who's their God? Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah, yod heh vah heh. Can I talk about the word Jehovah for a second? I don't this may burst somebody's bubble. It's going to ruin a couple worship songs too. Um, Jehovah is a mistranslation of Yahweh. Did you know that? It's, it's, uh, so the Hebrew letters are um, basically Y-H-W-H. Um, uh, yod heh vah heh. W is a V. Um, so it's yod heh vah heh. Capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital H is how we would transliterate it into English. The reason that we say Jehovah is because in the early days, they didn't want to write the word, they don't write Yahweh's name, they can't write his name in print, and so they would put little notes and little pronunciation things above it. And over time, those things kind of smooshed together and became transliterated in the King James as Jehovah. But calling God Jehovah is like calling your friend Tom, Tim. It's close, <laughs> but not the same. So I don't think that it offends the Lord. I think it's just a tradition that we've, that we've kind of carried. And so we have all kinds of like, like Jehovah Jireh. My, and I like to think the Lord is like, who? No. <laughs> but Jehovah, just so you know, and I, I, that's like a big bubble burst. I tell people that and they go, what? Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi. Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh Nisi. Anyway. The Old Testament Jews, these people that Paul is talking about, the, the ones who have the patriarchs, the ones who have the law, the ones who have the temple worship. Who are they waiting for? Messiah. They're waiting for Messiah. Say Messiah. Messiah. Messiah is the one who would come to free the Jews, especially in the days of what we call the New Testament, to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And Messiah would come marching in, just like God did in the Old Testament, where you read those verses where he brings in the horses and the and he brings in the, the birds of war, and he brings the victory. They were just waiting for the moment where Messiah would come. What's the one thing that would prompt the coming of Messiah? If they could only live a perfect sinless day, and or have the perfect sacrifice, their Messiah would come. So they're waiting and hoping for the redemption of Yahweh. That's what they've been waiting on since the earliest days. Jesus comes. Jesus calls himself the Messiah, the Son of God. What do they do with Jesus? They kill him. He is a mosquito meant to be swatted away because he's getting in the way of Yahweh's work. As it turns out, the people who were receiving the book of Hebrews were dealing with, what do we do with this Jewish man, this rabbi who claims to be God, who claims to be Messiah, in comparison with all of our history? Because as it turns out, 
Redemption comes through Jesus Christ alone. And yet at the same time, the recipients of Hebrews were practicing their Jewish temple things and all those other feasts and stuff, which we'll get to in a minute, and trying to figure out how do our ancient practices and customs line up with Jesus. So Jesus comes and he's their high priest. He's, he's their perfect sacrifice. He's their apostle. He's their Lord. And so the Jewish Christians that came to faith in Christ had nothing to renounce, right? It's not like they were going to say, oh, forget about all that Old Testament garbage. They would never say that. I mean, they, they didn't have to renounce it, right? Because that's what Yahweh, that's what their guy, their Lord had brought them to. They had nothing to renounce, but they had everything to leave behind. Have you noticed how hard it is for church people to change? Amen. Yeah. Are there any pastors in the house? Uh, we're doing a lot of changes at our church. We got rid of our pews. Oh, we did that once. We did that once. The church burned down. It's terrible. It's gone. Um, we got rid of our pews. 43 years old. The pews. They didn't look a day over 70, though. No. Made of 100% authentic press board. These beauties had taken on the moisture and the essence of many believing rear ends over many years. Now, we knew we had to replace them, and people said, well, of course we're going to get pews because that's what Jesus sat in. And we said, no, no. So we decided to get chairs. There was an uproar. Because people imagined that we were going to get like these folding chairs, which looking at them, I know you'll be comfortable for about another 10 minutes. So remind me, remind me to have a stand in about 10 minutes and stretch. So no, no, we're going to get these chairs that hook together and turn into pews. It's magical. Like they become pews, but they don't have to be pews. What? And then slowly but surely, people kind of came to terms with it. So this past Sunday, like yesterday morning, I got up in front of the church and I said, this is a historic day. This is our last Sunday that we're going to be sitting in pews because we have a bunch of chairs in our lobby we're going to be putting in next week. And so, and so there was this, this problem. We had to get rid of the pews. Some of them had been bought. In fact, there was one couple in our church. They got married in our church four years ago. They had a little baby, just like the one cooing in the back. I love that. And, and they have a little baby, and the baby has a playroom. And they said, Adam, we want to we have one of the pews so we could put it in our baby's room. How amazing is that? Why? Why do you want it? Because we got married in this church. We want them to have this little like, piece of history. Isn't that amazing that they have a house big enough for a pew? <laughs> like, that's amazing to me. So people made these donations, they made donations and they bought the pews, which if you know Free Methodist history, you're not supposed to sell pews, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> you do know your Free Methodist history, good. And so, so we had to get the pews out yesterday because right now as I speak, they're putting new carpet in, okay? So this is what we had to do after second service. We had to get rid of the rest of the pews. And so there was this big, like, 50-yard dumpster backed up to the main entrance. And as I was leaving, I saw a video on Facebook. There's a crew of people, like, collapsing the pews and carrying out the pieces to the dumpster. Yeah. And we shared this on Facebook, and, like, 10 people, sad face, like that. Right? Like the spirit has left the building, right? So we want to be sensitive to that, because change is difficult. And to be on the other side of this whole thing, think about how difficult it must be if you've been in the church for 50, 60, 70 years and you're one of the saints on which this whole thing is built on. Listen, we would not be here today if it wasn't for the faithfulness of God's people over many years. We cannot forget that. 
may we be found as faithful. Um, and imagine what it would be like for you to be in a world now where there's chaos and confusion everywhere and things are getting more and more bizarre and strange and out of reach. And now you're going to change the sanctuary. Like, it really is. It's, it's a tough thing for people, so we have to be sensitive to that. Yet at the same time, the church will not remain alive on its own. The cultural moorings are not there to keep the church going as it is. Anyway, have you noticed how hard change is for church people? Yeah. So imagine the people of God, all of a sudden... They have this whole thing that has to change. Hebrews was written to them. So those are the, those are the recipients. Then the author. Who wrote Hebrews? Take a guess. What do you got? Are you sure? Paul, right? It's Paul, right? Are you, you don't think it was Paul? We don't know? It's attributed to Paul. Okay. Remember, we want to know, we want to know the recipients so that, so that we can understand their world, right? So we just talked about that. We want to know the author so that we can understand who it is that's writing it and maybe why. So who wrote Hebrews? Do you have any um, Bibles? Like, do you have like Barnabas? the... Yeah. Barnabas? You guys have Barnabas back here? Apollos, perhaps, yeah? How many of you would say you're pretty sure it's Paul? Um, you're not going to get in trouble, but how many would say would have said up till now you would have said it was Paul? Who would guess Paul? Okay, good. Thank you. Who would guess Barnabas? Would anybody have guessed Barnabas yet or Apollos? Okay. I'm going to tell you who wrote Hebrews. Going to break, going to break the, who just stole my thunder? Okay. No, it's all right. I'm just kidding. You know who wrote Hebrews? We don't, we don't know. We have no idea. Yeah, God, ultimately, right? Okay, so Origen, early church father, he said this. He asked, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? Only God knows for certain. That's what he said. Tertullian, church father, he said, I bet Barnabas wrote it. Maybe. Um, one scholar suggested that Priscilla wrote it, of Priscilla and Aquila. Remember that, that couple? Remember how Priscilla and Aquila are spoken of in Romans and Acts? In Romans, Paul says Priscilla and Aquila are contenders for the faith. They fight. I mean, they fight with me. They support this thing. Like Paul saw them as a right-hand couple, Priscilla and Aquila. I wonder if Priscilla wrote it. And that would answer the question as to why she's not attributed to as the author. Why? She's a woman. Right? I think it would be so cool if we found out that Priscilla wrote Hebrews. And I would not be surprised at all because I believe Priscilla, from what we know in history, was brilliant. She was brilliant. She's probably smarter than, than most of the men around her, if not all of them. I mean, she was brilliant. And the only reason that they wouldn't be mentioned is because if you say Priscilla wrote it, there's no way it's going to make it into the scripture, right? Not, not, the, not the canon. And, and, so let's talk about Paul. Okay, so why, why do so many Christians think that Paul wrote it? It's, it's totally understandable. Why, why? Because of the writing style. Because of the writing style? Okay. Because, yeah, because he's pretty much a superstar of the New Testament, you know? He's the fourth member of the Trinity for some of us. I mean, come on. Paul's kind of a big deal. Maybe a little bit too big of a deal sometimes. But anyway, you've got to remember it's about Jesus, not Paul. Why do we think Paul wrote it? He wrote so many other things, yeah. What? Yes, of course, he would have known the Jewish customs, right? Why, do, why are we pretty sure Paul hasn't written it, or didn't write it? Well, he didn't put his name on it, which would be characteristic, because Paul usually put his name on his, on his works, right? I mean, right away, he was like, hey guys, it's me, Paul. Like, like... 
He would enter, his New Testament writings are like Kramer on Seinfeld, where he just, boom, <laughs> here I am. Okay, but some would argue, some would argue that Paul, because he was writing to Hebrews, would not have done that out of respect for Jesus. Whereas when he's writing to Gentiles, he right away talks about who he is, who he was, who God has called him to be. That maybe Paul wouldn't put that in Hebrews, maybe. There's another reason we're pretty sure Paul didn't write it. It actually follows a trajectory from beginning to end. Paul goes off on tangents left and right. I mean, the guy is the ADD of the New Testament. He's just bouncing all over the place. Hebrews doesn't do that. Every, every trail that Hebrews goes down has a purpose that brings us back to the, main, to the main path. Why else don't we think Paul wrote it? One church father said, it's not rude enough. It's too polished. Paul uses pretty, he gets pretty crass sometimes. It, get lost, it gets lost in translation. In Philippians, remember how he says that his faith is like, is like rubbish compared to the greatest? You know what word he uses for rubbish? Scubula. You know what scubula means? Beep! I had to censor it for the... That's exactly... It means human waste. I mean, he, he says that in the Bible. He's rude, man. He's just like, ah! You've got nothing to prove. There, then he's a little more like George Costanza. We're pretty sure, so, so let, let's get the record straight. We're pretty sure Paul didn't write it. We're, we're almost certainly assured that Paul did not write it. But the reason that even to this day, even as early as 1939, there were works, <coughs> scholarly works that said Paul wrote it. The reason that that happens is because in order to get it into the New Testament, watch this, the church fathers lumped it in with Paul because they believed it was authoritative and they believed that it stood on its own with, with such tenacity and such reliability that it needed to be in the New Testament canon. And they said, we've got to put this in here. And there it is. It's great. It's, it happens to be my favorite book in the Bible. I mean, it explains so much. Aren't you glad? But we don't, we don't know who wrote it. And then when was it written? Do you know when it was written? We don't know. We have no idea. Some scholars say it was written around 60, 65 AD. Some scholars suggest 80 AD. Now here we are in 2018 AD, and does it really matter whether it's 65 or 80? Does it really matter? No. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, it's so critical because something happens in 64 AD of critical importance in our, in our history. What happened in 64 AD? It was the summer of 64. What? Does anyone remember what happened in 64? Okay, here's, here's what happened. 64. Yeah, that's 70. Here's 64. There's an emperor named Nero. Nero is building his great, great city. Nero wants to do some renovation and gentrification of a certain part of the city where the architecture is kind of junk. But he can't come up with a good political reason to erase that part of the city, if you will, to bulldoze it. So most scholars would say that there was a fire that broke out that Nero wasn't too excited to put out. Maybe even his goons started the fire. So as to clear that area. In fact, if you ever heard like, uh, you know, Emperor of Rome plays a fiddle while Rome is burning, something like that, some saying like that, that's in reference to Nero in 64. 
because the city was on fire and the emperor is like, good, good, this will make room for my new palace. He wants to build a palace to himself, big, huge, golden palace. That's what Nero wants to build. And we complain about persecution now. Guess who got blamed for the fire? Christians. Christians got blamed for it. Why? There's easy scapegoat. They're kind of cultish. They don't fight back. Let's blame the Christians. So guess what started happening in 64 AD like never before? Persecution. Intense persecution. Why would that matter when we're trying to figure out what year Hebrews was written? Because Hebrews references persecution. Quite a bit. Hebrews is written to Christians who have been persecuted for their faith. Now, if it was in six, like, like 65 AD, that makes so much sense. Because they had just put up with Nero killing thousands of their, of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. But let's argue for 80. Because some scholars are so sure it was written in 80 AD. What's the one problem with Hebrews being written in 80? Something happens in 70. Do you know what happens in 70? There's a war, and Rome tries to take Jerusalem. And in trying to take Jerusalem, they set some things on fire, again with the fire. That seems to be the big thing then. And in setting some things on fire, it was actually the Jews who tried to get the fire to go a certain way in the city by like diverting it, kind of like they do with forest fires. or the fires in California. Have you guys seen pictures of that, the devastation? I can't even imagine what that would be like. I don't mind the occasional tornado siren in Michigan compared to like fires in Florida and then earthquakes and everything else and then sharks. So, um, so the, the Jewish believers are trying to get the fire away from the temple, the big, great Jerusalem temple, like the place where temple worship happens. And in their diversion, they accidentally force it to go back toward the temple. The temple catches fire and burns down, and it's gone in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. Now, if Hebrews was written in 80 AD, why doesn't the writer of Hebrews ever talk about the destruction of the temple outright? Good question. Perhaps the writer assumed they already knew that and only references temple things because everybody knows we're not doing that like that anymore. Perhaps. So what year was Hebrews written? We don't know, but it really does, it really does matter. Do we know when Timothy was set free or that? Because it says yeah. that our brother Timothy, Timothy. has been set free. Yeah, we're not sure. But that's another reason that people argue that it might have been Paul, because Paul's the kind of guy that would reference Timothy. And that's why people argue that it wasn't Barnabas that wrote it, because why wouldn't Barnabas talk about Paul if he talks about Timothy, right? Yeah, isn't this fascinating? I'm nerding out. You ever been around people that like get excited about Star Wars and just talk and talk forever? I don't, I don't get it. My kids have to explain to me what that big great planet thing is every time. Um, I love the book of Hebrews. E.F. Scott said this, quote, The epistle to the Hebrews is in many respects the riddle of the New Testament. Hebrews is the black sheep of the Bible. It's a troublemaker. It's an odd one out. Who wrote it? We don't know. Who was it written to? We're not 100% sure. When was it written? We don't know. And yet, there it is. It's a troublemaker. So, who are the Old Testament heroes of the faith? Who are they? Abraham, Father Abraham, had it many sons? Noah. Moses. Noah. Noah. Noah was mentioned yesterday. Uh -huh. Joseph. David. David. Daniel. Elijah. Elijah. Esther. Esther. Ruth. 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 Jeremiah. Well, I, mean, let's, I mean, let's talk about like all the Old Testament prophets. These are the heroes. 
What would a Jewish mother and father tell their Jewish child? Be like the heroes of the faith, right? Be like Moses. Be like David. Be like the ones who trusted Yahweh to do amazing things and to deliver us. It was built around this ancient faith that was geographic because the promise of God, the covenant of God, always came with a geographic location. I'm going to give you this land. It was a faith and a, a system of religion that was built around family because they were all about family units, especially in Jewish culture. It was economic because you have all these rules about what to do with this, that, and the tithe, and the offering, and the grain, and, the, and like leave the corners for the poor among you. And of course, spiritual and religious. So then you get to the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. By the way, my son's name is Malachi. I, didn't, I did such a bad job. I didn't actually tell you about myself at all yesterday. I will tonight. I'll talk about just a little bit of biographical stuff tonight. Um, but our son is named Malachi. We call him Mac for short because I love Mac computers and I loved MacGyver when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> seriously. We call him Malachi. We love that name because it means God's messenger. And we love going to like doctor's offices and stuff because they'll open the door when we're new and they'll go, Malachi? Malachi? <laughs> He's our little Italian prophet. Does anyone recall how many years you have between the book of Malachi and the appearance of Jesus? Yes, ma'am. 400 years. So we're not talking about a couple years of silence from God. We're talking about 400 years of silence from the heroes of the faith. And then Jesus shows up. The crowds followed him. He raises people from the dead. He heals the sick. He talks about the kingdom of God. And he is given to quick extermination. He is crucified. What happens after he's crucified? Rises again, three days later. What happens after his resurrection? One of the things he does after his resurrection is he explains to some of his followers the mysteries and the complexities of the Old Testament. And, and it's on this walk where he just sort of explains how the Old Testament fits into the New. After, after his resurrection, then what happens? He ascends, right? And remember, they said, you're going to see him come back just as you did. What happens after the ascension? What's the, what's the big story after that? Pentecost. It's Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes down. Fire, boom, wind, mighty rushing wind. The believers are all in one room. Jesus said, wait there till I clothe you with power on high. And then Pentecost comes, and how many people get saved? About 3,000 people, at least, if not six or seven or 9,000. Were those people Greeks or Jews? They were almost all Jews. Almost all Greek-speaking Jews. So guess what? They have an identity crisis. They have this temple worship. They have this thousands and thousands of years of history. They have the church fathers and heroes, or not the church fathers, but the, the Israelite fathers and heroes. Then they have silence. Then they have the Messiah. They meet the Messiah in a powerful way. 3,000 people are saved after Peter gives this incredible message. And they have what I would maybe call an identity crisis. Because you cannot follow Jesus without it affecting every single part of your life. If you can follow Jesus without it affecting every part of your life, you are not following Jesus to the fullest extent. You have compartmentalized your life so that you do spiritual things, and then you go and do relational things, and then you go and do economic things, and then you go and do things with your time management, you go and do things with your health. It, it can't work that way. One of the biggest challenges I experience in mentoring young adults, 20-somethings, there's, there's a 20-year-old, 20, 20 he's 20, 21, he goes to our church, he's just getting started in business. He's going to be incredibly successful. I sit down, I have coffee with him once a month. And we talk about spiritual things. And one of my biggest challenges with, with him is to try to get to the point where his spirituality is not one of the many compartments that he lives his life. 
It's the hardest thing. And most, many followers of Jesus have this problem. We compartmentalize things. You can't follow Jesus without it affecting everything about you. It, it just it, it won't work. Our lives change. Our relationships change. Our practices change. Everything changes. No doubt it's for the better, but it always comes with a price, and it should come with some kind of identity crisis. I mean, think about the Jewish, Jewish shock of suddenly realizing that he's the Messiah. And now what? Everything changes. In, Ro- in Hebrews, we're reading about a salvation of which not all Jewish believers know about, at least not yet. So let's look at Hebrews 1.1. Hebrews 1, 1. So by the way, I'm reading the NIV 2011. That's my translation. What translations do you guys have? Does anyone have the older NIV, 84? Okay, good, good. Does anyone have a Revised Standard Version or NRSV? Yeah, okay, cool. What about English Standard Version? Yeah? Okay, what about uh, New Living Translation? NLT? Does anyone have the message? NASB? And ASBU, 95? Okay, good. Good. ESV, English, what? Oh, CSV, yeah, okay. NASB, great. Uh, can, I give you, can I give you two minutes on Bible translation? Ready? Are you ready? There's, there's two poles, like two points of Bible translation. Dynamic equivalence or essentially literal. Dynamic equivalence is where they take a Greek or Hebrew sentence and they make a dynamic equivalence of what, how we would say that in English. So they're, they're free to move the words around, change the syntax, change the order, and make it very clear. The New Living Translation is a dynamic equivalence translation. It takes a big Greek or Hebrew idea and reformulates it, tries to be as true to the idea as it can, but tries to make it in readable English. That's dynamic equivalence. That it, it feels as alive to us as it would have in their language, right? That's dynamic equivalence. The other side is essentially literal. In essentially literal translation, what they're doing is they're taking the Greek and, their he- and the Hebrew and they're being as true as they can to the order and the syntax and the structure of, of, the, of the original language. And they're putting it in English. We understand it, but, but it's very true to the original structure of whatever phrase or, or word or sentence they're trying to translate. So we have dynamic equivalence and essentially literal. Dynamic equivalence, essentially literal. Which one's more readable? Dynamic equivalence, right? I mean, oh, we get that. I mean, NLT, that's so much clearer than, than the ESV or certainly the King James Version. Essentially literal. That one's tougher to read. Because, but yet, the strength on the essentially literal translation is you can tr- it's more reliable. It's more trustworthy. You understand that since we don't speak Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, every translation of the Bible is going to be incomplete. Like, we'll, like, we get that. Even if we spoke those languages, we still didn't live in that culture. And, culture, and language is in context. Language always works within the context of culture. So, the New Living Translation is dynamic equivalence. Uh, The CEV is dynamic equivalence. The message is not a translation of scripture. It's a great paraphrase by a guy named Eugene Peterson, but just treat it as a paraphrase, okay? I use the message in my study. I'll go, oh, I never saw it that way. That's cool. But I don't like preach from it. Essentially literal, probably the strongest essentially literal right now is the English Standard Version. Also the New American Standard Bible, NASB. That's, that's essentially literal. Methodists tend to use the RSV and the NASB. Like the, the Free Methodist Church used the NASB until about 1985-86. Where does the NIV fit into all of this? Right in the middle. So the NIV, the New International Version, which is usually the most popular for evangelicals, 
is right in the middle. It tries to be essentially literal, but it brings in dynamic equivalence. What's the one problem with this translation approach? You never know which one. Which one are we doing here, guys, one or the other? So when they came out with the TNIV, today's new international version, they took a Greek word Adelphoi and Adelphos and translated as brothers and sisters. But in the NASB, the NIV 84, etc., it was translated as only brothers. Guess who didn't like that? <laughs> Calvinists. So they stopped at the TNIV because it got a lot of bad press. Then they came up with the NIV 2011, which translates Adelphoi and Adelphos as brothers and sisters. Isn't this interesting? Yeah. King James Version. People say they're King James only. Which King James? There's only about seven of them. Seriously. And that's not even including New King James. Okay. Why do I say all that? Because Hebrews 1.1 is of critical importance. If we can't agree on this, the rest of this is basically senseless. In the past, God spoke. Stop. God speaks. This is a miracle, my friends. God speaks. God reveals himself to us. I teach communication classes, and I... Oh, what do we got here? Does anyone have a marker type thing? I bet I do. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand for a second. Why don't you stand while I collect my things. Stand for just a second. Don't slide into fellowship mode too much now, Christians. Don't fellowship with no eye contact. You guys figure out, what do I do with this? This is going to be way too short, isn't it? This is like for the floor. Yeah, we usually That's okay. I can, I can just... It's all right. It's a white letter. That's all right. I'll use this. Here, I'll take it too. Just, oh no, I'll take that one. Perfect. Okay. All right. Okay. Sit back down, Christians. All right. That's okay. I, I'm just working with what I got. Okay. There it is. I know that guy. You guys can sit back down. I need one of those shirts. Can I have that one? That's only Christian. Come on. Okay. Can I have a volunteer to come hold this like this? Are you sure? I need someone that's kind of, I mean, I need it to be tall and strong because I'm going to push against this. Oh, look at that. There's a stand. Thank you so much. No, it's okay. I'm going to put it on this thing. No. This is like brainwashing for you guys. Like, this is just in your face. Oh, look at that. Okay. Just so you know, I did not ask Bayshore for this. I'm truly, this is me. This is not them. No one dropped the ball but me, okay? So thanks, Bayshore guys. All right, here's communication theory. This is a person and this is a person. We good so far? Can everybody see this okay? All right. So, no? Higher. All right. Beautiful, yay! All right. What's your name, sir? Give a hand for Matthew, please. Matthew gets an extra jewel in his crown. All right. So I'm going to make this as fast as I can. Let me know if you need a break. He says it's okay. All right. Um, PK, we're used to it. PKs, yeah, I have a couple PKs in my hand. Communication theory goes like this. This person wants to say something. 
and they have something in their head. It's an idea. And in your head, what you do before you communicate is you encode it into language, English language. So you encode and you send out a message. And that message is received by the other person. What's the first thing the other person has to do? Decode, you got it. But then apply it to their own context. So when this person encodes something simple like, I want ice cream, their brain thinks of all this and encodes it into an English syntax that can be understood. And so verbally and non-verbally, you look at somebody and you say, I want ice cream. We just communicated a lot right there. And then you heard that and you decoded, and what's the first thing you thought? Me too. Me too. See? Because, because you're Christians. And so you decoded that, but you decoded that within your own context, and you thought, ice cream is good. I want ice cream. Let me have ice cream. And so then you, you encoded me too. And then I decoded that, me too. That means they want some too. And then I say something back like, let's go get some. And this whole communication thing happened right here. Now, Essentially, the playing field is level. I'm almost done. Right here. It's person to person. When God communicates, he does something that we call condescend. You know what condescend means, right? It means to talk down to people, which I just did. Isn't that terrible? I have a friend who works in the corporate world. He says, I don't want to be condescending, Adam, and that means talk down to people. That's, that's a joke, but it's not funny. Okay. Um, when God condescends, can you stand on this? Okay. God, are you all right? Are you okay? You're doing great. I hope we give you a raise. God is way up here. And of course, he's not like a person. We're just stick figuring him just to understand it. Where are we at if God is there? We couldn't dig deep enough. We got to get past the magma. There's nothing level about us and God except through Christ, right? But, but when, when God speaks, he condescends. He speaks way down to us. He's so far away, we can't even call out to him and say, hey, can you see? No, he's beyond our comprehension. The only reason that we can communicate with God is because God communicates with us, and the only reason God communicates with us is because he loves us like that. Amen? Amen. Thank you very much. Okay, so. Thank you, man. Thank you. God speaks. Turn to Isaiah 55. In the past, God spoke. God speaks. God communicates. He condescends. Isn't that amazing? He reaches down to us. This is something that we could never do on our own. Isaiah 55. So if God, if we, if we put the theory of human communication to what God is doing, that means that God has to have a message in his head, encode it, send it down. We have to receive it and decode it. Say something back. That's communication. Here's Isaiah 55. Start at verse... Uh, 6. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Thank you. What does this tell us about God? That first of all, God speaks with passion. That when he communicates, it's out of his passion and love for us and for our redemption. He cares about us. He's telling us to run away from wickedness and run to him because he is good. He says, come to me. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to freely pardon you. Though you don't deserve it, I'm going to have mercy on you. That God communicates first with passion. So when God speaks, there's always the passion of God behind him. One of the things that makes Wesleyans unique um, is that we define God first and foremost. His, we can't define God, but we're, his motivation is always love. That he's not out to crush us, he's not out to judge us. Yes, he has every right to do that, but his primary motivation is what? 
love. Because as 1 John tells us, God is love. God speaks with passion. And now pick it up at verse 8. So God speaks not just with passion, but with perspective. Because he sees things that we can't see. He knows things that we don't know, and he thinks differently. One of the great things that makes God God is that he thinks differently. Aren't you glad that God thinks differently than you? He, he speaks with perspective. So when he's talking, he's not just making it up or, or doing some kind of guesswork like you or I might do. He sees the whole thing. He sees how it is. This is why we hesitate to bring things to the Lord in prayer, the burdens, the sufferings, whatever it is, because we can't possibly imagine how it will work out when he sees the whole thing. We can't possibly imagine that God would accept us if he really knew these things about us when he already knows. Pick it up at verse 10. For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and return not thither, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God speaks with purpose. Again, God does not waste words like you and I. He always speaks with a purpose. God gets stuff done. Can you say that with me? God gets stuff done. He's not inactive, and he does not like to waste time. He likes to get stuff done. There's a plan. There's something unfolding. He wants to get it done. When God speaks, it's to make things happen. And then in verse 12 and forward, he looks to the future. So God is not only able to see how it is now, but he's able to see how it is in the future, that God speaks with perception. This is so critical to our understanding, back to Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, that God speaks, that God spoke. It says in Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, that God spoke to our ancestors, which means those who came before us through the prophets, right? And so you know how this works, right? God would, would choose somebody to be a prophet. Can I have a volunteer, please? I just need a volunteer. Don't everybody rush up at once. I'm not going to make you hold up a thing, I promise. I just need a volunteer. No, Kevin, no, you work here. No, no, no. It's too easy. Yes, ma'am, thank you. Thank you, though, Kevin. You're, you're, my, you're always my backup plan. All right. Okay. There's ice cream after the service tonight, and it's delicious. Thank you. Thank you. She, but not today. Okay. She, she just gave a prophecy. What's your name, ma'am? Tammy. Tammy. So for whatever reason, Tammy was chosen. Uh, she chose herself. But anyway, Tammy came up. I gave Tammy a message. Tammy shared the message and sat back down. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. In many times and in various ways, the prophets were given a task to share a message. Did you ever notice that in the Old Testament, a prophet would usually share a message with the people and then run? Right? <laughs> right? That's how it was. They, yeah, they were afraid for their lives. Um, we just did a six-week series in the book of Habakkuk, which is actually a tame prophecy, but a rather raw prayer conversation with God. Have you ever read Habakkuk? 
I know some people say Habakkuk. I say Habakkuk the way I say Chewbacca and not Chewbacca. It's Habakkuk. <laughs> but look at the prophet Jonah. What does Jonah not want to do? He doesn't want to do the prophecy. Look at the prophet Amos. Amos is just a shepherd from Tekoa. For whatever reason, he's chosen to go into town and start busting heads and tell God's people they're out of line. So Amos, Jeremiah, all of these Old Testament prophets, you name it, they had a certain task at a certain time to share a certain message. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Are the prophets divine? No. They're doing a divine task, but they are not divine. The prophets would give a prophecy, but then move on with their lives. And so if you're a Jew, what you're trying to understand is, when it comes to a certain life situation, you want to know, what does God say to that? What does God say about this situation? Well, how do we discern what God is saying? We go to the Old Testament scripture, right? Who wrote the Old Testament scripture? 20-some authors, 30-some authors, whatever. I don't remember the number exactly. So we need to look at what Moses wrote. We need to look at what Jeremiah said. We need to look at what Malachi said and Amos and Joel. And we need to look at what all these different prophets... So William Barclay calls this the fragmentation of God's message in the Old Testament that you had to go to all these different places to find out what does God say and sort of sum them together and try to find some commonality. But Jesus is different. Why? Because it says in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Why is that remarkably different from the way it was in the Old Testament? Take, just take a guess, one at a time. What do you got? Why is that different? Jesus was divine. Jesus was divine, right? Prophets are not divine. How else is it different? Yeah. Human prophets only know what God yeah. shows you. Exactly. Oh, that's great. The human prophets only know what is revealed to them. He sees it all. Because remember, when God speaks, he speaks with passion and purpose. And, and uh, what's the other one? Perspective. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad somebody took notes. Um, why else is Jesus different? What about the whole fragmentation thing? Single source. Single source. No more picking and choosing and trying to sum. Single source. Why else is Jesus different from all the other prophets? Bingo. You should teach a workshop. You are smart. <laughs> and you are after, in here, right? Is it in here? Is, is the next one in here? Okay. Um, Jesus is not just the messenger. He is the message. He's the Logos. He's the Word made flesh. Come on. I mean, he's not just the messenger. He is the message. No more fragments. We don't have to go see what Isaiah and Jeremiah said. Jesus is the whole enchilada. Not just in that he is every piece, but that he is himself. And here's the even better part. Every Old Testament prophecy that was spoken was him. Because he's the word then too. He's always been the word, right? So Jesus doesn't go, Jeremiah, who? No, no, he knows all these people. He's the word. In Genesis 1.1, what does God do? He just speaks things into existence. Which is why... The writer of Hebrews says that he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, which we'll get to in a minute, and through whom also he made the universe. I love that. The writer of Hebrews is like, wow, God has spoken all things through his son, Jesus. He's revealed himself to us. Oh, there's also that one thing he did that one week. He made the universe. So, like, I just love that. It's like an aside. And it says that Jesus is what? Heir. H-E-I-R. Not hair. Not hair. <laughs> But heir. So what does it mean to have an heir? What do you need? 
Yeah, you, you need a relationship. You need a father, right? Usually, or someone above you. What's the other thing you need for an heir to take over? Kingdom. Yes, you need something to take over, something of mass, right? What else? You need someone to die or retire. If someone is the heir apparent of a big corporation, they're just waiting for the CEO to retire so that they can become the CEO. <laughs> that God has appointed Jesus heir of what? What's it say in the scripture? Don't make it up. What's it say? He's the heir of all things, right? So what does that not include? I can't think of anything either. Jesus is the heir to all things. Through whom, by the way, he also made the universe. And then verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That phrase, exact representation. So back to verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation. The Greek word there is, check this out, character. Right? But I love how different versions, and I'm glad we have different versions of the scripture in here, what are some of the ways that your versions put that? Could somebody read, besides NIV 2011, which I just read, could you read just the first part of verse 3? Something different. Give me, a, give me an ESV. Who's got English Standard Version? Yes, sir. Uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. That's how the ESV translates character. Good. What else? Who had the RSV or the... Oh, who had the NASB? Could you read NASB, somebody? New American Standard? Yeah. Okay, so you have the, the express, what was it? The, just the first part. Just, just read the first part of three. And he is the radiance uh -huh. of his glory. Keep going. And the exact representation. The exact representation. Of his nature. Ah, nature not being. Interesting. The King James Version, I actually love. The King James Version puts character as the express image of his person. Is that what you've got? Yes, sir. The express image of his person. This is deep. This is super deep. And then verse 3, uh, the, the, the middle of it, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Does that mean that Jesus is literally making everything happen all at once right now? If he's sustaining all things, does, isn't that what it means? Listen, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel said, God is of no importance unless he is of extreme importance. God is of no importance unless he is of extreme importance. Which means, how could Jesus be Jesus unless he is at the very center of all things? And unless he is maintaining all things? And what else would he use but the most powerful thing that he's got, which is his, his word? Because he is the word. The earth is spinning, axis, planets rotating, air, exchange of gases in our lungs, your heart's beating. Gravity's working. We're probably going to eat lunch. Then comes the delicious ice cream, which is sort of the mega theme of our session today. <laughs> what is Jesus doing in all this? Where's he at right now? Well, well, but wait a second. It says after you provide a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We're going to have to jump into that tomorrow. And we didn't even get to angels yet, but tomorrow we pick it up with angels. Um, 
What do you know about angels? We, oh man, get ready because when you, tomorrow you will know and appreciate so much angels. But we got to stop. Okay? Can I, can I pray before, before I get done? Let me just pray before I lose you and then I'm going to throw it over to Kevin, all right? Would you join me? Jesus, we recognize you as a communicator, the communicator, the word made flesh. And it's our prayer that we would take this study from um, just mere Bible trivia and that instead you would find room in our hearts and in our souls today to speak to the deepest part of who we are. And so what we're going to do, Lord, is make ourselves available to you. And we hold you to no great expectation. We're not asking for spiritual fireworks or anything like that. We just need your help to be aware of your presence and to hear your still small voice. And so in the stillness of this moment, we recognize your holy presence. And may we continue to recognize it through the rest of the day. Through Jesus Christ, our pioneer, our Lord, our great high priest, our apostle, and our friend. Amen. 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 See you guys tomorrow.